Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of the Nation's Weekly Podcast. Joseph Carlson here, Editor-in-Chief, and I get to be the host of today's conversation with, if you've been watching along, a familiar face, Stephen Elliott, actually was the very first podcast interview that we did years ago when we launched the kind of the first iteration, scare quotes, uh, of the Nation's Pod, which has now become uh, the Nation's Presents. It's a long-form series. Your guys' conversation was two hours. It was long. So impressive there. Yeah. But if you haven't seen that and you're one of our paying subscribers, you can go to our video archive. There's a series of wonderful conversations with different reformers that we featured. Uh, But today, we're going to dive back into Stephen's life and story a little bit, but we're going to kind of come at it um, from a little bit of a different angle. The conversation that Joel and Stephen initially had was centered around a book that Stephen wrote recounting his own story. It's called War Story. I recommend it. It's a good read. And, well... The first half is a good read. Got to be honest here, I haven't finished it yet, but the first half is great. Um, and you're a better writer. You know, maybe you can write for us someday. Oh, well, uh, thank you. Uh, it's good to have goals. <laughs> <laughs> now, but there's there's so much, man, as we I've gotten to know you and uh, learn from you as we've been running this experiment, which is this new version of Nations. Uh, I thought it'd be great for us to just sit down and have a conversation, unpack some of the things that you're passionate about, because a big part of how you see the world and what you're passionate about is shaping and informing what we do here at Nations. I mean, not only do you have the privilege and the heavy burden of being our business leader uh, and helping make sure that we do things like budgets and um, have goals and, and whatnot, but uh, yeah, you're you're a deep well, you're a deep thinker, mm-hmm. and your journey is a rich one. Um, so I kind of would love to explore this conversation over the course of three sort of movements or chapters, and that's formation, fallout, and then the way forward. So for the people who have never heard of you before, uh, who haven't read your book or didn't listen to that initial podcast, this first sort of section, um, formation, I'm kind of curious... N- I'm curious to know about some of you know your the biographical details about where you're from, kind of uh, how, how did you end up in the chair opposite me? But I'm more so interested in um, what were the kind of powerful shaping forces that have resulted in who Stephen is today? Um, you were born in, I know, two I'm particularly curious about, uh, and you're free to explore other ones, uh, but uh, you were born into a spiritual tradition. Yes. Um, And that religious practice is an incredibly powerful formative force. Mm -hmm. And then you went through the military, which is also this insane formation engine. I mean, they are teaching you to become a, a, to to march in formation. Uh, So I'd love for you to just share some of your story through that, that lens of, of formation and how those different forces have kind of shaped you. Yeah, thanks for that. And I think it's really, yeah, I appreciate the the framing with respect to that. Um, I grew up, I was, I was an only child. I grew up in central Kansas. Uh, my my mom and my dad, they were, uh, they actually separated and divorced shortly after I was born. And so I was kind of the first and, and only child of, of their union. And all of my family, um, both my mom and my dad's side attended, they were, my granddads were um, uh, wheat and cattle farmers. So, um, and they both attended and my folks grew up attending the same small, uh, very conservative Lutheran church in central Kansas. And so that was, um, the faith tradition of, of both sides of the family. And then after, um, after they were divorced, when I was an infant, my mom, uh, left, 
the Lutheran Church, mm-hmm. um, which was a pretty big deal. Um, and because the way that the the family sort of viewed it was, um, and this was not, this was pretty explicitly put to her at one point, um, was the fact that the way that you honor your parents is by maintaining oh. the faith tradition. And and I say that like both sets of my grandparents are they they're uh, it was a much more buttoned down perhaps version of the faith but but mm-hmm. very much authentic in terms of the way that they they pursued that and expressed that so um, that was part of the heritage but for her so she was this is nineteen early nineteen eighties um so the um, still sort of the uh, the momentum of sort of the Jesus movement um, was was there. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how long it took to get from California to Kansas, but a while apparently. <laughs> and so um, she was going to um, you know assemblies of God churches and and all manner of churches where like things were happening. Mm-hmm. You know there were like it was it, these were the places where like being quote unquote slain in the spirit or like spiritual healings, those sorts of things were occurring. Not all the time, but mm-hmm. but. She had, uh, you know, a radical encounter with Jesus, and then she was, in her own way, she was just going wherever she could to try and find that. Mm. And so that was um, that was sort of the tradition. That was the world that that I showed up in spiritually was in the small town of Central Kansas um, with a single mom who, um, uh, by the way, is also uh, still is to this day a senior sales director in Mary Kay Cosmetics. Um, and so I was the the kid. Um, being dropped off as far away from soccer practice as I could in the only pink car for miles. <laughs> oh, and that's great. So it was mortifying. Um, Target on your back. Yeah, hundred percent, very much so. But um, she's an amazing lady, um, still is to this day. And and her, um, you know, her prayer for me and very express, you know, uh, wish for me was that I would follow whatever the Lord put on my heart. And so she was very, very open with respect to that. Um, and it was interesting because growing up, I would. You know, in some cases, we'd be going to, you know, all manner of um, evangelical, you know, Christian gatherings and churches. And then I would visit my grandparents, and it would be a very, very conservative um, Lutheran gathering in this, you know, this small Midwestern town. Mm-hmm. And so um, I grew up in the church for all intents and purposes, um, and um, grew up probably around a, m- a more charismatic side of the church. Mm-hmm. And didn't have a dad in my life. My, my grandfather, my mom's dad was the closest thing to a dad that I had. And he was, um, he was a farmer, but he was also a veteran of World War II. And so he had served um, for a year and a half in the Italian campaign. And as a kid, I mean, I, you know, I played with my share of G.I. Joes and, you know, could turn any stick into a gun, you know, kind of thing. And so that was uh, always idealized in my mind in terms of the idea of military service. And so his influence in my life was very formational just in terms of not pushing military service, but in terms of setting this example of this generation of people who laid down their lives uh, in terms of their daily lives, went, volunteered, fought the Axis powers, and then came home. And so, so yeah, I I guess my formation was... um, was very much in the church. It was very much with the family of of faith. And um, was that yeah? You're okay. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you've got this interesting tension because you've got, as you mentioned, on the one hand, um, kind of the conservative, buttoned down Lutheran tradition, yeah. which has an emphasis on liturgy and on a much clearer in 
in-group, out-group sort of, yeah. you know, binary. And then you have, yeah, the strange emergent spiritual movement that was birthed out of the Jesus movement. Um, and as you said, your mom discovers a more uh, personal and experiential form of yeah. it. So I'm curious, what was your, like, when you th think back on that, um, was faith and religious practice uh, like a positive thing? Did you, like, did you thrill to that? Did um, Or... Did you, were you resistant to it? It's a good question. I was, my, like my mom tells a story like that I, um, you know, I was four years old in a car when I told her that I wanted to follow Jesus. Mm. And her response was, then you should tell him that. Mm. And so that was, so I was very much alive in that way, engaged, like like the, my awareness as a child and, and my my interest as a child in, God, the Bible, all of that was was very much there. And then from a family standpoint, by the time I was old enough to kind of know what was going on, a lot of the tension had been resolved. But, but when I was very young, like my grandparents thought she was in a cult, like straight up, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and so there was a lot of, uh, a lot of concern um, for her well-being, um, both in terms of just the fact of like, She's gone through a divorce. She's now a single mom running a business, et cetera. But also just culturally, you know, you go to, which I, I really, I have a lot of um, appreciation for what that must have been like for my grandparents to be their children of the depression. Um, mm -hmm. This is this is the service and this is the cultural expression of their faith as a community that they've they've had for their entire lives. And then they're going to, they actually visited, uh, you know, one of the Assemblies of God churches that we went to as an infant, and I, mm -hmm. I think it terrified them. And so um, there was a bit of, like, tension. I remember as a kid where, like, this idea of um, what was spiritually alive versus spiritually dead, um, I think to some degree took on a bit of a form of being applied to certain Christian denominations, mm -hmm. um, which I don't believe is necessarily true, but I think that was just within the context of that cultural experience within our own family. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to me, I think that I'm sure this will come back up later in the conversation, but even from an early age, you're exposed to different legitimate expressions of, yeah. of following Jesus. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned your, your grandfather being a primary like male figure. It sounds like he kind of gave you, provided you with a vision of what it looks like to be uh, a man and yeah. Yeah. Did you, what was your relationship like with your mom? Was it good growing up? Yeah, it was really good. I mean, it was, um, she was always very supportive of whatever I wanted to do in terms of like activities, sports, et cetera. And the fact that she was kind of a small business owner helped mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. So she actually, um, she was really a, a pioneer in a lot of ways in terms of um, what she was doing and how she was living her life. Mm -hmm. um, she was entrepreneurial and yeah, she was, I mean, she was a great mom you know, in, in so many ways and still is. So I'm really, really, really grateful for her. Mm, that sounds amazing. So you've got in, on one hand, a, <clears throat> an example of strength and yeah, entrepreneurial spirit uh, from your mom, but also religious and spiritual vitality. It sounds like she mainly just was encouraging you to discover who it was that you are to explore freedom. And um, then you've got the vision of your grandfather and the history of military service there. Mm -hmm. So obviously, so then let's, 
move towards how how was for you uh i mean i know you went to oral roberts university I did. uh if what was that a very formational experience for you oh boy yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a podcast series um uh. yeah it was oru is amazing it was an incredibly positive experience i did not plan on going to oru um i was accepted my plan was um I was accepted uh, at University of Kansas. Um, I was going to go to law school after studying political science. Um, I had actually, I don't know if I should say this in public, but I had actually gone to a University of Kansas law camp. Um, so that was, I've, I've I was been to that way kid. more. No, I've been to way more embarrassing <laughs> camps than you, dude. Let's talk so, about that. Yeah, I went to geology camp. That's one of them. Wow. One of the camps that I went to. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that was my, that's my... Uh, so many questions, but, um, <laughs> no, 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 this is about you. <laughs> All right. So you plan to go to state and then instead you end up at ORU. Went, end up at ORU. And it was like, I had, um, Tulsa, which is where Albright's university is, was, and still is the headquarters of many, many charismatic ministries. Mm. And so a lot of the, the quote unquote content that my mom was exposed to, or like the strains of, of charismatic Christianity that maybe she was influenced by in some form or fashion, a lot of them were in and around Tulsa. Mm. So we had visited Tulsa. I remember when I was a kid and, um, if, if any of our listeners ever are in and around Tulsa, it's an amazing town, great city please go and visit the campus of Oral Roberts University mm. because it looks like the Jetsons came and planted a space colony in the year 1965. No way. Like the, the, um, the architecture and the vision that was given to Oral, who was this, you know, uh, uh, basically healing evangelist with no college degree. Mm. Um, and the Lord gave him this vision to plant a university in South Tulsa to raise up students to go into not just train ministers, but to basically, we need doctors and lawyers and teachers and nurses and geologists, and we need all of these people who are filled with the Holy Spirit going into the world. Mm. And that was really the, the vision of the school. And I knew when I visited there as a, you know, surly 18-year-old, I was, I was angry because there's no brick and ivy. There's like, some of the buildings have like, <laughs> it's like gravel glued to the walls, like that you know what I mean? And it's cool. It's actually pretty cool today to, to see that. Mm -hmm. But it was like, I knew that's where I needed to be. And that was not the the plan that I had initially formulated. But at ORU, kind of the, the condensed version of that, I studied business. And it was at a time when the university itself was um, in a very strained time because there was, there was kind of two schools. Um, there was the um, very um, unhealthy name it and claim it, prosperity gospel sort of front mm. that was being like pretty shamelessly presented to students um, at chapel services in ways that like to even describe to you some of the services, not all of them, there's many that were really wonderful, but some of them, it's, it's almost, it sounds made up, some of the things that would have been said from, from the pulpit. Mm. Um, and so you had that happening, mm -hmm. but then you had this huge cadre of teachers, administrators, other leaders who were, they represented uh, a pretty wide swath of Christendom. The, the chair of the theology department at the time was Roman Catholic. Um, and no you had these people who were like, in some cases, they'd been teaching there for 30 or 40 years, and they were really invested, in, and they were sort of holding the line of, like, I know what you just heard, 
like you just like I, like you could see the shock and awe going into a business law class of people who were just like, well, what did we just hear in chapel? Right. And like the grace that a lot of those professors had to like speak truth when it was needed, but also not um, undermine leadership hmm. was pretty amazing. Yeah. So I had a very rich experience there, but also that was rich because it was relationally rich. Um, like I could separate a lot of the unhealthy, some of the theology that was presented mm -hmm. and um, from the actual authentic relationships that, that I was experiencing. But I would say that the final thing I would say kind of on that piece uh, was that I was a quote unquote good kid. Um, mm. I was um, in retrospect, like going, going into that time of young adulthood, um, you know, I was I was an RA and I was leading mission teams and I was, you know, like, mm. you know, good business student. And so unwittingly, I was sort of becoming the, the older son in the story of the two sons, oh, wow. right? Luke 15, right? Yeah. Where you're, you essentially believe without ever writing that down or telling anybody that, you, you essentially believe that you, you're actually pretty good mm -hmm. um, in that you have a seat at the father's table because of the fact that you're pretty good. Mm. Um, and the, the, the tragic irony of that is you don't realize the extent to which that's true until that's challenged. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so that was really, and that's, I, I can't, I don't blame that on anybody. It's not like I, I got a bad exegesis on a passage and that was my theology. Mm -hmm. It was, I was filtering that through my own, yeah. my own pride, my own experience and really just my own youth. Yeah. Uh, well, that I mean, I, I appreciate the uh, you taking responsibility there, and, and but at the same time, um, some of that is the force of formation at work, right? Like, hey, there's a there is a cultural expression and expectation about what a good Christian boy or you, you know burgeoning man from Oral Roberts University looks like, and you know, baked into the vision and values of the institution. And, uh, which was very much, uh, which is a fair point because the, like the, the point of that university, which is one of the things that was attractive to it is it's educating the whole person, spirit, mind, and body, mm -hmm. which is great. But you do have, and I don't know what that's like now, but I don't think it's st strictly endemic to ORU, but that environment definitely lends itself to a unintentionally, I think, a works-based sort of presentation mm. where it's just like, well, wait a second, you're not experiencing life and vitality in all parts of your life. Well, what are you doing wrong? Mm -hmm. Right? So, I mean, have you not been to Devos like five times this week? Right? Are you yeah. not like, what's happening here? So let's target that so we can, you know, make sure, which there's an element of like, yeah, obviously living by biblical principles, there's the, it yes. can bring life and vitality, mm -hmm. but the the quote unquote the theology of suffering was essentially you're doing it wrong. Uh huh. Which is interesting because uh, yeah, uh, the next chapter you move into the military, which suffering is baked into their formation. Um, but so la so wait, last fun question before we move to that, it's safe to say then you being the good boy that you were. Um, and the elder son. So you never claimed to be tardy in cla uh, to class because you were slain in the spirit in chapel. <laughs> um, no, but I, I I really wish that never happened at ORU, but it hundred percent did at times. <sighs> yeah, I had a as a side. I had a lot of great professors. Um, and like any school, like you've got some that you know, it's just like, well, that's like a refund on mm. that class. But I had it was like a after lunch humanity. It was like an after chapel humanities class. And God bless her, that teacher, 
she just like there's so many times after like she was still in the afterglow of whatever happened in chapel and it's just like you know we were going to talk about greek architecture but doggone it i feel like there's some folks here that we need to pray for i'm just like no there aren't like unless there, somebody is bleeding there are in the chapel <laughs> there are in the chapel but i'm here for an education please yeah and so oh, there was there was some of that but mm-hmm. um yeah it was uh I mean, the, the people that I got to meet and the relationships that I still have to this day are, are priceless. Mm-hmm. And that was an amazing experience. So you mentioned before you ended up at, at ORU um, and you said you got a degree in business? Yes. Okay. That you had planned on state and you wanted to go, you wanted to become a lawyer. Yeah. So when did the, when did the, the you know, turn in the fork in the road come where you ended up in the military? That came, so um, 9-11. So that was my, my junior year of college. And um, I, I still remember that day pretty clearly. And as everyone kind of has their own, you know, 9-11, mm-hmm. you know, story in terms of how they found out and all of that. And that was, it really got the wheels turning for me in terms of, I think that's when, because I, I never, ever seriously considered military service as I, you know, became a teenager. It was just like, yeah, I played army like a lot of kids, but mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to do that. And then when that happened, I think that's when I can look back now and I can see that um, to two stories in particular really influenced me. Um, one was the story of my grandfather. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of a sudden we have a, a Pearl Harbor-like event that is happening at the time when I'm almost exactly the same age that he was when he volunteered and joined the military um, as a result of Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. And so part of that, that question of what are you going to do in terms of you know partaking in this this struggle, whatever that would even look like, who knows what that looks like, mm-hmm. um, against those that attacked our, our country. And so that weighed on me really heavily as far as like, it felt like between me and whatever I would do um, as, as a young adult, like, it's just like, I don't think, like, I don't know if I could live with myself if I didn't join the military. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have, I didn't export that onto other people. Like, it wasn't just like, it was just, I felt that for me. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like, well, everyone needs to join or do that. It was just a burden that I was increasingly feeling and really stewing on and like, you know, uh, wrestling with. And then, interestingly, and I didn't realize this honestly. Um, you know, sometimes I think the forces that shape us the most powerfully are. It takes us a while to see them mm-hmm. um, because That's they're right. so ingrained. And so, nine eleven happens obviously November of two thousand one, December of two thousand one probably one of the most impactful films that I've ever seen was released in theaters called Black Hawk Down. Oh yeah. And, oh. and Black Hawk Down is, it's an amazing film. As many listeners will know, it tells the story of, uh, Delta, um, 160th helicopter pilots and, and army Rangers, uh, in combat and in Mogadishu. Mm-hmm. And, um, watching that film and seeing particularly those communities highlighted it was just like, I mean, you couldn't have had a better recruiting film for special operations at that time. Hmm. And um, obviously Ridley Scott, the director, did not mean that to be the case. They were telling a true story based on a book that had been written years before. But that really, then you had this like historical story of, you know, grandfather in World War II then that just gets further contextualized as to what that could look like mm-hmm. um, for me in terms of really service, sure, but also kind of a self-imposed rite of passage, mm, kind yeah. of a self-imposed like, 
if I just, you know, wear a tie and, you know, run spreadsheets and live in the business world, am I really a man? Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like this whole thing, there's a lot of things wrapped into that in terms of, uh, not all, not all altruistic with respect to, can I do that? Um, sure. Adventure, challenge, mm -hmm. all of these things. Mm -hmm. um, and then all of a sudden, there's sort of a, oh, wow, like maybe maybe that community or some element of that community is something that I want to pursue. So then that that sort of sent me down a path of, you know, reading every book I could get my hands on, mm -hmm. on special operations and all these different communities, and then ultimately deciding like, yep, I'm, I'm enlisting in the military, and then um, enlisting specifically to to go through ranger selection. And so that's what happened. I graduated uh, with my bachelor's degree in business. And then three weeks later, I was beginning that military journey. You know, it's interesting. Stories are always being presented to us, whether, whether that's being done explicitly or intentionally or not. And yeah, you invoking, obviously, 9-11 is, um, well, it's an inflection point in our country's history. And man, the amount of stories that were spawned out of that event are, I mean, they're manifold. And I think that the implications implications and impacts of those stories is still unfolding in our country. But so I see this um, at its, one of its most base levels, it's a, it's a story of threat. Mm -hmm. um, and that to me is interesting because it does, you know, any threat to us as individuals um, elicits an immediate subconscious response, you know, um, and, you know, fight, flight, freeze, but that's happening in, for you, you like receive or hear that story in the particular context that you're talking about, which is at Oral Roberts, which is a conservative Christian, uh, institution, evangelical, um, in the, the geographic region. And I mean, I, I don't want to mischaracterize, so feel free to cor correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, I grew up in Seattle, which is progressive and mm -hmm. pretty, uh, non-churched, you know, but there's an interesting, uh, man, yes, the military, uh, national pride, that sense of, of service, of courage. There's this, man, there's a bunch of different stories that are all swirling about this young Stephen that I see. And so I, I can't, I find it hard, uh, hard to imagine you responding in a different sort of way. It, it is, it, it's priming at you to say like, Hey, will you, will you take the leap? But yeah. 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 It probably in some respects it would have been harder not to given some of the, um, mm -hmm. the influence and yeah. just all of the, everything that was in those cultural waters as well. Which is interesting too, because we don't as a culture and as a faith tradition as well, uh, we don't do, you know, like male formation happens differently than female formation mm -hmm. does on a number of different levels. Um, and we don't do a particularly good job at initiating boys into manhood in our culture. No, I mean, what, what happens, it's kind of one of those things, like you're going to be initiated into something, it's a question of what and how. Yeah. And so like identity, you have an identity, mm -hmm. you will like seek identity, you will fill that vacuum with something. And so I think that there's um, media has done a lot of that heavy lifting for us mm -hmm. um, in all sorts of forms where we, um, without even knowing it, mm -hmm. right, we're being, we're swimming in stories mm -hmm. in some form or fashion uh, from which, 
you can't engage with any story, whether it's a book or film or binge watch TV show, and not allow some component of that narrative to become a part of you. Mm -hmm. Because if it's so offensive to you that then you just turn it off. But if I'm engaging with the content, I'm engaging with something. I'm identifying with something. Even if it's just one character or even if it's just one aspect of it, it becomes part of you. And so I think that, um, you know, I've been just, again, even reflecting on that. Like Black Hawk Down, it's it's an amazing film. The story is an incredible story. And at the same time, the film is not true. Mm. Um, I think we get, and especially I'll I'll talk about like war films in particular because I have just a little bit of experience in terms of like being on the audience side and at least in a very narrow set, the participant side is there is no war film that is true. Mm. Um, you're taking events that may be true in the case of black Hawk down and you're putting them in the hands of one of the most brilliant cinematographers and directors that is Ridley Scott. And you're putting them in the hands of one of the most brilliant, you know, musicians and I think Hans Zimmer mm-hmm. and you're giving it to artists to do what they do, which is good to essentially make this god awful thing watchable. Yeah, that's what they do, and so in 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 and then what you see, you don't smell it, you don't feel it, you're not personally related to these people that are getting torn apart. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just sitting there eating popcorn, and you see the elements of war that are beautiful, which are self sacrifice, mm-hmm. it's camaraderie, it's purpose, right? It's these things that get presented that are really virtuous Mm -hmm. and that do exist and can exist within a military context, but certainly not exclusively there. Mm -hmm. And so you see that you're entertained. Um, and then that becomes, you feel as though you, you feel as though you know more than you actually do about, about that thing. And that was in reflection, that was kind of my experience with respect to that. Yeah. Well, especially, isn't that the power of story in so many ways? A good artist uh, does transport us there, invites us into that reality. Um, But you're right. We have to be discerning and realize, like, I mean, pick a cliche, uh, Lord of the Rings, love it. I mean, it's it's an all-time story. Um, Read a great tweet last week that criticized its writing and i think we talked about it actually yeah yeah (laughs) we're like you know what actually great storyteller maybe not the best writer all the time but yeah um as much as i can go and inhabit the world of middle earth and learn about it and know about it i can't actually go there and Mm -hmm. i've never yeah i've I've still never been in some ways Mm -hmm. um so it can it can cultivate certain virtues in us and certain um like healthy responses it can develop empathy you know it can increase knowledge and understanding Mm -hmm. but you're right ultimately there is a limit there. Um, hmm. I had a great, I had a great question come to mind. I want it to come back to me. This is great where we have the producer here who's also the editor. So you can always edit out this section. Um, yeah. Or we could choose to leave it in authenticity. <laughs> okay. So there's limits to um, to what a film like Black Hawk Down can do, uh, and it sets us up in some ways to misunderstand uh, the realities and the complexities of something like the war experience. But does yeah show some of the beautiful sides to it. Um, one thing that's interesting to me is that uh, so the film experience there, and even as you mentioned earlier, your experience at Oral Roberts. Uh, 
it was perhaps unbalanced because neither of them do a really good job at equipping you with a, a robust theology of suffering mm-hmm. and an understanding that uh, about some of the savagery and pain of life and of war and the impact that it has on shaping and forming us and even the ways that God can be present in and work through that. Um, so I'm kind of interested to go there at some point, but is there anything you want to share about your experience um, in the military, in in the process of, of going through that? I mean, we don't need to get into the particulars of what does it look like to go to, you know, to become an army ranger, but, you know, you go through that training and you go on deployment and um, you experience the, I'd say the, the beauty and the dark side of, of both of those. So could you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So, um, I think in general, um, now, especially after 20 years, um, there's all manner of resources written by all manner of people, including myself to some degree, like I've written my own story, so I'm not ragging on veterans who've told their story because I'm one of them. Um, but yeah, there's, if you want to know what it's like to go through ranger selection, you can find that out. Yeah. Um, it is in general, it, um, it trains you and it self selects for people who are basically willing to put up with pain. Because that's really the distinguishing characteristic um, is uh, you don't have to be the most athletic, although there's a certain amount of physical requirement. It really is just, will you quit? Mm -hmm. And so that's understandable. Um, The downside of that is it doesn't uh, give you a great toolbox to draw on to the extent that you're perhaps suffering in other ways post-deployment, post-war, because you've been conditioned within an environment that, that says, you know, to ask for help is weakness. Um, right. And, and so, um, so that's, I think that's part of it. And you also have a lot of people who, um, at least in my experience, especially within army infantry and then going into, um, you know, that, um, that culture, um, I don't know the percentage, purely anecdotal. I don't speak for anybody but myself in terms of military veteran community, but you have, a lot of people who are like myself who have their own version of father wounds. Mm. And um, for them, in some cases, the military is the first, and like a drill sergeant or a ranger cadre is like the closest thing to a male role model that they've had. And somebody, you know, not treating them particularly politely with respect to their performance is like a weird form of love mm-hmm. because it's like somebody cares enough about me to yell at me. Yell at me. So there's um, there's a lot of there's a lot of challenges with that in terms of just the, um, the emotional challenges and spiritual challenges that come with it. But also I think some, sometimes what, what people are set up for in terms of some element of failure Mm -hmm. with respect to, um, with respect to that, Mm -hmm. not to mention the fact that you're, you're going into an environment that, um, offers you this incredible identity. Like in, in my case, like being an army ranger, like that's Mm -hmm. amazing and an incredibly fickle identity. Because um, even if you're successful, whatever that means, at some point that will end. At some point you won't be that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then what? Then who are you? Um, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of those things that are that are baked into it. But um, but my experience, you know, specifically, I showed up at Second Ranger Battalion of Fort Lewis, Washington, which is what took me to the Pacific Northwest, um, which was great. Um, I was on track. Like again, like I have a plan. God's job is to kind of underwrite my plan, yeah. more or less. And so... Um, Sign of his favor is that your plan is working? Plan is working. And so arrive at 2nd Ranger Battalion, uh, trained there for a number of months, and then, you know, we deployed 
this was, you know, early on, relatively early on in the war on terror. So the, the battalion had just gone on their first uh, Afghan deployment. In fact, when I got there, you know, guys were mourning the very first KIA from 2nd Battalion at the time. Mm-hmm. had just happened. Um, wow. And so that was, it was all like in hindsight, like it just seems like, like so much has happened in 20 years. That was like right at the beginning of it. But we were deployed, um, our company was deployed to the Afghan-Pakistan border in the spring of 2004 as part of a spring surge, mountain passes open. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, fighters move about more, more freely. And the long and short of the experience was um, through the course of um, a lot of mistakes in terms of command and control and uh, what our unit was asked to do and our unit was split, et cetera, um, our part of the platoon found itself on the receiving end of an ambush. Um, and so we were responding to that. And then the other part of the platoon that we did not know where it was uh, it had gone off. Those guys had gone off to accomplish another objective. Um, they responded to that ambush and they positioned themselves on a ridgeline um, that we did not know they were there. Oh, and so as we came out of uh, a canyon, having been uh, fired upon for some number of minutes, um, we see muzzle flashes and uh, superiors on my vehicle respond to that and uh, and shoot. I shoot as well my weapon. And um, when the smoke clears and we, we figure out what's happened, we realize that we'd sustained four casualties, um, two dead and two wounded. And then very quickly, I mean, we, we knew immediately that all of those were as a result of friendly fire. Yeah. And so... We go back to the FOB, um, Fort Operating Base, and there's debriefs and there's investigations and we're told, tell the truth, right? You're not in trouble, like, mm-hmm. but just as best you can, you know, tell what happened and what you saw, et cetera. And so we did that. And then um, we went back, we were in the FOB for maybe a week. Uh, it was a pretty tense debrief because half the platoon was getting shot at mm. and the other at least some of the guys were doing some of the shooting. Um, but they tried to get us back on our horse as quickly as possible. And we were out, you know, doing more missions mm-hmm. as a platoon. And then when we came home, we discovered that, um, the narrative that we had told in terms of when we were asked what happened and we all knew it was friendly fire and we didn't, you know, there wasn't any, uh, any deception around that in terms of our platoon. Mm-hmm. We found that a very different narrative had been told, um, about the deaths of one of our comrades to the American public. And so, um, and that individual, that was a professional athlete, um, who was a wonderful guy to serve with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was one of the guys who died that day. And so at that point it was, it was the element of friendly fire, mm-hmm. which was not in Black Hawk Down. Um, that's not, uh, a narrative that, um, people talk about or want to talk about, um, for kind of obvious reasons in terms of the guilt mm-hmm. and shame that can accompany that. Um, and then it was the element of some element of a media frenzy around, um, who had been killed, um, and then around the level of deception as far as what had been, uh, what had happened. And yeah. so, um, so that was, yeah, that was my, that was my wartime experience. Jeez. Uh, well, I'm very sorry that that was your experience, man. Um, it's tragic on so many different levels and frustrating and yeah. infuriating. Um, I'm curious, you know, like I said, if people want to learn more about that and your, you know, your recollection and experience of that, then they can go read your book or yeah. listen to our longer podcast. And 
I'm kind of interested more so not in those events and the drama surrounding it, but um, kind of to understand then the impact, right? We're, at, we're kind of looking at this conversation through this lens of formation and these forces, spiritual and otherwise, that sh- have shaped you and who you are. And um, so in all of that, um, what, how does that end up impacting your mind, your heart, your view of yourself, God, you know, I mean, there's a story, like you said, that was the driving force behind your life up until yeah. that point. And it surely didn't include an experience like that. I mean, you, you prepare to go to war and you prepare to do what you, is that you were trained to do. Um, but you, I'm sure you never had any drills that prepared you for an experience like that. Um, so what, what was, um, you know, most disorienting or harmful or wounding about that sort of experience? Yeah, I think it was, um, you know, again, to kind of go back to use that word picture, you know, I went as the, as the shock wore off, um, I went from being slowly from being the, uh, the older son in the story, uh, to the younger son in the story. Mm. And basically like, I can remember, like there was still muscle memory left with respect to spiritual practices. Like, okay, I'll go to a church gathering, mm-hmm. you know, when, you know, um, and, and I remember doing that and it just increasingly like, it was like each time I would go, it made less and less sense why I was there. I was just like, I don't, I don't know what, it, what is this? Like, why am I here? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I remember, one time I got, I got reassigned to, uh, from Fort Lewis to, um, the East coast and I was at Columbia, South Carolina. And I went to, you know, the big Baptist church in the corner for a Sunday morning gathering. And, um, I guess people picked me out of the crowd pretty quickly as being military. I had, um, did not have facial hair and had a bad haircut. So I guess that kind of <laughs> tips, tips people off. Mm. And I was there by myself and I just remember like, you know, and you're in South Carolina as well, which that's like a whole nother level of hospitality and, you know, just beautiful people. But I just remember like people, um, yeah, like people wanting to, uh, like introducing themselves and we take you out to lunch and thank you for your service and all this stuff. And it's just like, like, thank me for my service. Like, do you know, like I just got fired from being a ranger Mm. for like potentially shooting somebody that was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. So, and you want to go have lunch? Mm. Like, I, I got to get out of here. Yeah. And so um, then it was sort of like the whole, well, how do I have any level of community when kind of the biggest deal going on in my life right now is this giant, like, unresolved thing? Mm-hmm. There were still investigations going on. Um, and then you have, like, post-traumatic stress starting to set in where I'm beginning to medicate with alcohol just to sleep. Um, and so then you're in a position where it's just like, well, if I'm going to be around people, either the conversations we have are going to be pretty depressing and I'm not going to be great company right now, or I'm just going to have to lie. Mm. And I just rather not do that. Yeah. And so isolating more and more. And then in that isolation, which was, which was easy to do given on the job that I had, I had, I had met Brooke, who's my wife at that time. And we were dating and we got married during that season. And, and she's very much part of the, um, 
the fallout that I experienced is also fallout that she experienced and, and had to walk through with me. Yeah. And so um, in many respects at this point, the story becomes just as much hers and our eldest daughter as it is mine mm-hmm. um, in terms of um, their own secondary and tertiary woundedness with respect to what I uh, was, was dealing with. But essentially the long and short of it was not unlike the younger son. I just said, you know what? Just cut me a check. Like, if there's anything coming to me, whatever that means, like, I'm done. Because I could not reconcile the idea of a God that was both all-loving and Mm all-powerful. And that wasn't even just, that wasn't even just, um, I guess, um, confined to my own, like, how did you let this happen? Although that was part of it. It was actually tasting real tragedy for the first time and like experiencing and tasting real death and then realizing that that's what people experience all the time. Mm -hmm. Like that is our world. And so, um, I just couldn't reconcile that. And so, um, so yeah, rather than, than struggle through that, I just kind of walked away. Mm. Well, back to kind of what we talked about before, like your kind of formation history in a lot of ways, um, you know, we've identified that there's not a lot, uh, not a, a robust theology of suffering. Um, and so I'm kind of curious your experience of, so the church didn't seem your, your spiritual background didn't provide you with the spiritual resources or framework to be able to process in a healthy way. A lot of the, the trauma that you experienced and, um, and this, this utterly disorienting season of life. And so you mentioned, okay, and you, you try to turn to spiritual community in almost like a muscle memory sense yeah. and find that lacking want, like you, it doesn't, you don't find, uh, yeah, you don't find the resources there to help you on your healing journey. Um, so it, you leave that behind. Um, so that's just, you turn your back on, was it practicing, believing, like, what does that look like for you? That season of, is it, would you use the term deconstruction or is it just kind of, uh, an embittered turn your back? What is it when you light it on fire? (laughs) Immolation. (laughs) Thank you. I think it was probably more that, Mm. um, like where, yeah, like I, I didn't really, I can't say like, oh yes, this was the point. Like I examined all the theological facts. Um, it was just, um, a pure response to pain and, um, sleeplessness and stress and poor nutrition. Like that's the thing too. It's just like, it's all these other secondary and all these other third order effects where like, yeah, like all of those things are going to be like hard on your mental health. Mm-hmm. It's going to be hard on your well being. But at the core of that was like this, this wound, um, that was festering mm-hmm. and I didn't, I didn't know what to do about that. And so, yeah, like it felt very much like when I would pray, it just felt nothing. Um, and so then I just stopped mm-hmm. and, um, and I guess that's a broader conversation of what constitutes prayer. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I do believe that, um, the, even the handful of times where like I had the, the audacity to curse God, um, I believe that was received in its own mm-hmm. way as prayer. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't believe the Lord was afraid of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I, I'm not proud of that. And I'm, you know, I would hope to, if, if faced with, you know, another tragedy of that sort, I would hope for my, for my own well being. Like, that's the thing. It's like the path that I chose in terms of walking away, um, 
it wasn't, it was easier in some ways because I didn't have to resolve this tension. Mm-hmm. Just like, fine, God is whatever he is. And so I'm just not, I'm just, he's not there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that just makes it harder in so many other ways. And so um, it doesn't really solve anything. You just choose a different path and you're still faced with the same existential questions. You're still faced with why am I here? Mm-hmm. What am I doing? What is my identity? Um, all those things don't go away. Um, you've just removed the being who can be most helpful in, in answering those questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, yeah, I didn't, spiritual practice just pretty much just went away. Gotcha. So the younger son has a, a, a quote unquote, come to Jesus moment, you know, uh, a rock bottom moment where he's sitting there with uh, the pigs and wants to, you know, fill his belly with that slop and is like, wait a second, you know, so was there a wake up moment for you? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there was a few, like there was a number of like turning points, but um, for me, like Brooke and I had gotten, um, we actually separated and divorced uh, at a point because I wasn't violent or anything, but I was just an emotional shell. I yeah. was successful at work and I was just a shell of a human being and she didn't want to be married to that and I didn't, didn't blame her. And I wasn't getting, I wasn't acknowledging like, and didn't really have a container to acknowledge honestly, like what, like what is post-traumatic stress? I yeah. know what that means. Like, um, and like, what's the path for, is this something that you just live with? Or is this, you know, just didn't even, so I just disengaged from it. So, I mean, the Lord had brought us back together. Um, but the, um, how long were you guys separated? A year. Okay. Yeah. 2009, 2010. And what were you doing for work that you were succeeding in? I was a financial advisor. Okay. So I was a money manager. From military to money. Military to money. So it's the next book. Two, yeah. <laughs> it's the next book. <laughs> Two powerful forces that make the world go round in lots of different ways. Yeah. And that was part of my medication was trying to medicate with success. Yeah. Was like, I felt like an epic failure from the military. So I felt like if I could achieve outside of that in the civilian world, that that would help. Mm-hmm. And it didn't, I mean, yeah, it didn't. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I guess probably the most, like I had to get to a place the, I mean, there was points where, you know, during the season where we were separated, that's when I started kind of like letting the Lord back into my life and like asking for help in that way. And, um, engaging that relationship. Mm-hmm. But for a number of years, I still like sleep was a real problem. Nightmares were a real problem. Like a lot of stuff was a real problem and I didn't really know how to, how to fix that. And so my mental health, emotional health was just kind of slowly deteriorating until you're kind of like, I was at the point where, you know, you're pulling the pistol out of your gun safe mm-hmm. and you're putting the mag in and taking it out. And it wasn't because, like I didn't have something to live for. Um, it was because I was just really tired. Yeah. And it's like, if this is what, like, I'm not very old. And if this is what I'm going to have to to live with, I, I just don't know if I can do that. Mm-hmm. And so it was during that season that, um, so that was the, 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 the very kind of darkest uh, hour where I was kind of just, you know, head barely above water. Um, and not very good at asking for help. Like that was really kind of the underlying, the underlying issue was my own pride, um, was not wanting to invite other people into mm-hmm. the conversation and the brokenness. Um, in part, I didn't know how, and in part, um, I didn't want to appear weak. Mm-hmm. And it was at that time that a, um, a friend of mine um, invited me to a retreat. 
And the retreat was um, not one that I would normally have ever attended because it was an ayahuasca retreat. And so, um, but he just, he, he had gone to this place and he described it and he described me kind of what his experience was like. And it was just in my spirit. I was just like, yeah, I need to go to that. Mm. And so I go to him to this place for two nights. Um, and it's, that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. But, geez. Um, hold on. Let me check off ayahuasca and my bingo <laughs> card. But I was, um, I went into that very broken very hopeless. Basically like, yeah, I'll try. You have like, um, a psychedelic from South America I've never heard of. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Where, where do I, where do I show up? Mm -hmm. Um, but I remember like that first night in the ceremony, um, that it's ceremonial. It's, it's not like a drug party or something. It's not like that at all, but it's also not anything associated with the Christian tradition that I was was part of. And I remember sitting there in this, this very, very, nice place. Um, and I had just, um, drank the, um, the ayahuasca, the, the, the stuff that you, you take. And, um, just this feeling of just dread washed over me. Mm. And I was just like, like this fear, this panic, like this is not like, I've just invited demons into my life. Like mm. what is going to happen? Like, this is not a good, like, just like, and then it was really interesting, like what started to happen for me anyway, was it was like the realization of like, I'm judge, I'm basically judging this whole experience and judging all these other people because it doesn't meet my criteria of what I think healing should look like. Yeah. And slowly How it was just sort of like uh, the Holy Spirit was just very gracious. Um, it was just like, you're the problem. Mm. Like the darkness mm-hmm. right now, it's, it's you. Like it's, it's your ego, it's your fear and you, you, you can let that go. Mm-hmm. And so that experience, um, was what, that's where I, I experienced healing for post-traumatic stress. And there's no magic to, um, there's no magic to ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the modality that the Lord used to heal me. He, yeah. he, he somebody could have spit in the mud and rubbed it on me and it, if that's what needed to happen, that's what would happen. But it was a beautiful modality because it completely challenged. It required me to be absolutely surrendered to something I was so uncomfortable with mm-hmm. that was not part of my faith tradition. Um, and that is what I think allowed the Lord to get to the core of the issue for me, which was my pride. Mm. And that was, that was the sickness that was keeping me sick. Yeah. And so that, from that point, um, you know, there's still, there's been, continued to experience healing in different ways, but that was a significant turning point in terms of not having post-traumatic stress and, and kind of opening a new chapter in, in life. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. I didn't actually, I, I, I had no idea that that was part of your story. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad though, that, that you experienced healing. Yeah. Um, and that you sensed the tenderness of God being present there. And, yeah. and that, was kind in revealing your part in the suffering that you're experiencing. But it's, it's, it's hard for me to hear some of that without, yeah, once again, like just through the lens of all the things that had formed you up until that point, you know, when we don't, like when we, I think this is a great segue into this conversation about, um, well, yeah, the healing power of story and why it is that we here at Nations try and, um, 
do a good job of being faithful to the brokenness of the world while we're also always looking for hope and the surprising places that God is moving and working. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because it's exactly stories like yours mm-hmm. where, hey, we didn't expect for God to show up in that way, you know, um, and didn't expect an experience like that to lead to you reclaiming in a lot of ways and rediscovering your your faith in Christ and um, a new trajectory for your own life. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about what happens, what happens after this, you know, you, you, you are able to experience some measure of peace and healing. And obviously you reunite with, with Brooke and, um, then you continue being finance guy for a bit. For a bit. Uh, Yeah. 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 So, um, how do you, what did your healing journey look like after that? After that, it was a lot more like, um, and, um, you know, Brooke articulates this a lot better than, than I can. The, the, the short version of it was, it's, it was almost as if, um, she intuitively knew without thinking about it, that she kind of had to hold it together more because I was not okay. Mm. And then once like I had this experience and all of a sudden it's like, I mean, like, there was still like kind of getting used to like, it's like you've been in a wheelchair and all of a sudden you can stand up and walk. Mm. Like, I don't even know how to describe it as far as just like you're, you're spiritually like awake again. And this, yeah, the, the, the sickness that you've been carrying, it was just kind of like just carved out of you. Mm. And then having experienced that, it was almost as if without there being, I don't think a conscious thought to it, it was like, then she had to let go of a lot of things, um, not against me, but just in terms of like her own, she, I think there, there's a realization of her own like wounding and brokenness just from like me, mm-hmm. um, not trying to hurt her, but you can't, you know, anybody who, you know, if you're, if you're telling yourself that, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not sharing my trauma with those closest to me. Like we don't talk about it, you know, therefore, you know, it's not, I'm, I'm keeping it, I'm saving them from it. Mm-hmm. Like if you are in relationship with them, it, you're, that's non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like maybe you're not talking with them about, you know, your nightmares all the time, which is probably good. Mm-hmm. But um, don't fool yourself into thinking that your woundedness doesn't impact and alter the story of those that are closest to you, because mm-hmm. mine very much did. Yeah, And so um, there was a season... And that continues, you know, in, in just marriage in general, you have two, two centers that come together and pledge themselves to one another and, uh, which is absurd, um, and wonderful recipe for a beautiful disaster. Right. And so like that is, and that's, I mean, that's God's chief mechanism of sanctification in us is essentially if we're, if we're married, it's our spouse. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not very comfortable and that can be really painful and difficult at times. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of things that, um, I had to repent of, um, and, um, just really recalibrate and I'm still doing that. I'm still learning. And, um, so there was that season and then, um, and then moving into, I guess the, um, the, the telling of, you know, some aspect of, of what I and our family experienced, mm-hmm. uh, which was not something that I ever really expected to do, but then that, that became, there was an invitation to do that and it was at the right time and with the right people, and that continuing sort of on this this journey of telling story that is dark 
is is seemingly hopeless is still in many respects unresolved. You know, there's not a happy ending to this story necessarily. Um, you know, the people that that were hurt and killed are still dead, right? Yeah. There's there's not there's that element of it, but um, but seeing also the power of in the right way and with the right help, um, just the power of telling a story mm-hmm. and allowing others to connect with that um, is it's been a real um, a real I don't know if joy is the right word, but it, it definitely has been a real grace that that we've experienced that yeah. we're really grateful for. Yeah, it's so strange how we fear the the broken and the painful parts of our stories, the story, the parts that tempt us towards shame and towards isolation. We're so fearful of of those, and for good reason. They're painful uh, and they're messy, and oftentimes, you know, um, they run counter to the image that we like to project of of success or power or likability or um, whatever normal yeah. normalcy, but. Um, when we befriend that part of ourself, when we get to have an experience like you did, where you encounter God's love that reveals to you, you know, hey, um, you're trapped in a prison of your own pride, mm-hmm. and that is that is compounding a suffering that I don't desire for you. Yeah. You know, so if you're able to accept a new gift, one of humility, then you can begin to experience not only healing, but your own healing can become a blessing to other people. That is just one of the coolest, like, paradoxes mm-hmm. that I have yet to encounter. Yeah, and I experienced the, the cool, the neat thing too is like when I can look back, like the, um, like even the, the stories that were shared with me from other people um, were also part of that journey, right? It's mm-hmm. this, it's this ecosystem of story where, you know, um, my grandfather just like, well, I want to go you know, fight and serve my country like, yeah. like he did. Mm-hmm. Um, part of like his caring for me in the aftermath of what I experienced was open. He was an artilleryman in Italy for a year and a half mm. and him opening up to me about friendly fire that he was responsible for. Oh, wow. And so there's, and others, you know, who all of a sudden, and it wasn't, the, the, the cool thing about that is it's not just this one-sided transaction it's he feels less alone mm-hmm. sharing something with his grandson who now actually has a context, some context for understanding this terrible thing. Mm-hmm. And then I feel more known and actually closer to him in that regard. Like this, this, this thing that could otherwise be bound in, you know, I think one of the greatest lies, which is a fact, which is shame, which is guilt, which is isolation. If people really knew who you were and what you did, you mm-hmm. would not be loved. Mm-hmm. And when, and again, there's time and place, but when that can get broken through, yeah, it does the exact opposite. It actually can create connection and it can create healing. And it's just getting past that initial bridge of fear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, I, I, that's why in part I'm so thrilled about the work that we get to do mm-hmm. is because we're taking the, the the lessons and the truth and the wisdom that you just have shared here through your own story and trying to scale that and trying to find these stories of, of brokenness and of beauty uh, throughout the world yeah. and hold them up so that people are invited into, um, invited into community. I mean, in some ways it's the community of the suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, but it's also that seeing that transform into a community of hope is I think precisely what we need. So what is it that you're most excited for? Or what do you, uh, do you have hopes and dreams for the path forward from this point on for, for you, um, or, or for nations? Very excited about nations and very excited about what's developing here and, and just the, the creative team that's been curated and is also forming. And so I feel very, um, yeah, I feel very honored to be part of that. I think that there's, um, good news, bad news. There's a lot of brokenness in the world. Mm. Um, and, um, I don't know that there's more brokenness in the world, but we're certainly more um, aware of or have the opportunity to connect with that brokenness in very um, all-encompassing and visceral ways, just with the way that that information travels now, mm-hmm. right? If I want to almost live stream aspects of a war on the other side of the world, I can do that. Yeah. And that's crazy. And so um, that's a, I think it's a lot for the human race to sort of grapple with um, as far as, you know, compassion fatigue, what do I engage with? What do I not engage with? Like the world feels like a crazy place. Like mm-hmm. what what role do I have to play in that in the midst of just trying to pay rent or just trying to like make it month to month? And so um, I think broadly speaking, the thing that I think I'm most excited about is just um, trying to be part of calling out um, people to participate in the story of like their own brokenness and then what the Lord wants to do with that and what the Lord is doing with that. Mm-hmm. What I experienced is not unique. Um, it, it, thankfully so. Um, it's um, trauma is not confined to people who served in the military. It takes many, many forms. And a lot of the same markers that made my journey harder on myself and on my family are the same things for yeah. people. Um, and so I'm really uh, hopeful and praying that um, we have the courage um, to, to follow into those dark places mm-hmm. and, and that we have the, um, the grace and strength to care for those stories. Um, because that's what, that's the other thing that I learned when I look back, you know, whether it was, it was amazing how the Lord used, um, journalists. If it wasn't for a producer and a writer, um, at ESPN, I never would have told a story. And they midwifed this story mm-hmm. so well um, in retrospect. And so I think that there's, um, I think that's part of the role we get to play without owning an outcome. Mm-hmm. That's not our job. Um, mm-hmm. But but inviting people into the truth that, you know, the, the cliche, you know, find your greatest pain, find your greatest purpose. I think there's some truth to that. Okay. And, um, and so I think inviting people into that um, from where they're at, whether it's, you know, brokenness and trauma from all manner of things, mm-hmm. um, especially with the church, um, in some cases, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's okay to name that and it's okay to, um, feel things that don't feel good, um, and process that and step away if you need to. And the mm-hmm. only thing I would say in the midst of that is as best as you can, like have some community around you as you're doing that. Absolutely. Um, the the re- biggest regret that I have was not that I hated God for a season. Um, I do I do lament that because I I can't even my anyway. I, that's <laughs> anyhow. That's that's not a um, something I would say lightly. But 
But from a relational standpoint, um, there were people in my life who didn't know what I was going through, um, who um, I damaged relationship because I didn't invite them into mm-hmm. the honor of sitting with me at a hard time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I do, yeah. And I think, I think sometimes we kid ourselves and say, well, this person is busy or they're overwhelmed or they're whatever. And it's just like, you know, like be invite people in, pray for discernment in terms of who those people are, mm-hmm. but, but don't struggle with that alone. Yeah. And, um, and so that would be a word of encouragement to people as they're, as they're wrestling with some of those things. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that for nations. And, and there is like within the realm of, you know, veterans advocacy, you know, we're involved to some degree in, in trying to help move the needle with respect to how the unseen wounds of war are viewed and treated. Mm. So we're right now it's a, you know, depending on the statistics, it's north of 20 veterans a day take their life by suicide. If you count drug overdoses, which the VA doesn't, that number is 2x that on a daily basis. And that epidemic is not, the epidemic of, really the epidemic of hopelessness is not confined to the veteran community. So um, there has to be a narrative shift and there has to be a cultural shift with respect to how we view that. And there has to be a spiritual shift and an invitation for the maker and healer of all things to be part of that too. Mm -hmm. And so um, to whatever degree, like our experience can be put in service of that, we're, we're very much open to it. um, Knowing that there's a lot of people that need to be involved um, in, in shaping that new reality. Hmm. Well, to the degree to which that you've done that today, I am grateful, my friend. And it's a privilege to get to know you and to get to work alongside you here at Nations. And I'm, I'm grateful for you taking the time to sit down and share a little bit of a window into your story and some of the hard-won wisdom that you've walked away with. Um, pray that the healing deepens only deepens and that you guys have more opportunities to share your story and just what it is that God's done and is doing in and through you guys so thanks thank you nailed it 35 minutes really no (laughs) this is like that can't know that power